Welcome to the Health and Wellness Show, everybody. Today is Friday, September 8th, 2017. My name is Jonathan. I'll be your host for today. Joining me in our virtual studio from all over the planet, we have Tiffany, Doug, and Erica. Hi, guys. Hi. Hello. So we're missing Elliot and Gabby today. We wish them well. I uh, hope to see them next week. Um, today, our topic is the right stuff. So we are going to talk about writing, and uh, it's got a, um, a lot of interesting facets, especially in regards to uh, mental health. Uh, so that was kind of the general point that we wanted to address, mental, emotional, psychological health. Um, but a lot of people don't really know how to begin writing. Like, what do I write? Uh, what do I say? Uh, you know, especially now that we are uh, communicating much more through digital means, uh, text, email, uh, that kind of thing, social media. Uh, so we write, but we write in much, much different way uh, now, you know, than, than we used to. I think that the art of journaling, I guess, is is kind of, uh, it's not lost, certainly, but it's, I would guess it's not as prevalent as it was. Uh, but we just want to talk about that and, and what some kind of like writing exercises and, and psychological uh, benefits can come from that. Um, so uh, Erica, we had been talking before the show that you have been doing this for quite some time. And I wonder if you could kind of just give us an a overview of, of the exercise that you have worked on. Yes. Um, well, maybe I'll start a little bit before that, because with my background in teaching, one of the things that I was really inspired by in going to school to get a BS in education was writing. <laughs> And um, and I, I feel like I was fortunate in the 90s to be in a program where actually handwriting was still very much encouraged. And um, mm. I was trained in Waldorf and Montessori. And so there's a lot of, you know, uh, studies about child development. And especially with Waldorf, uh, they don't give children pencils till they're about seven years old because the the fine motor skills of holding a pencil and all those things. I mean, if anyone's interested, you can look into it. But I was really fascinated by it because everything was um, starting the children off with drawing and they would do, you mm. know, half an hour of drawing. And then you would go back and you would ask the children to describe what they had drawn. And depending on what their writing level was, they would either, either write it down, maybe a few sentences or what I would do um, when I worked with homeschool kids was I would write it out in pencil for them and then they would color over it in crayon. And so I, it fascinated me how children have such a great imagination. They can do all these amazing drawings and then the part of telling the story about the drawing and then transferring that to the writing. So this topic is really near and dear to me. And um, a few years ago, I did a book, I read a book called The Artist's Way by Julian Cameron, and a lot of people think, well, it's about unblocking your creative artist if you're a painter or a poet or whatever, and really, anybody can use the book. She published it, I think, 30 years ago. She was a screenwriter and uh, wrote plays, and um, she just developed this program and put it in a book. It's 12 weeks, and a major part of it is called The Morning Pages, and in a minute here, I'll uh, put a link in the chat to a video that she talks about. But basically, the morning pages is you get up every morning, first thing in the morning, and you spend 
15 to 20 minutes writing three pages. It can be binder paper, it can be notebook paper, it can be a little tiny journal, and you just do stream of consciousness writing. So don't worry about punctuation or grammar, any of those things. And you do it every day. And all these things come up. The first thing that comes up is you don't know what to say, right? So she said in her teaching and in her videos and her book, like, well, just write. I don't know what to write. I don't want to write, (laughs) you know, for three pages. Just work through it. And she talks a lot about what's called the inner sensor, like you're terrible at writing. you, You can't do this, you know, and you just write those things down. And, um, you get to about two weeks and you go, oh, I don't want to do this anymore. And you find all these excuses not to do it. And she just keeps saying, just keep coming back to it. Just write three pages, just write three pages. And she's very almost redundant about it. But I feel that there's a purpose to that is to push through that sensor that says you're not good enough. You know, all that, the negative introject, so to speak. So, um, Yeah, I pretty much have been doing it every day for three years. I don't do it in the morning anymore because, you know, again, you it's it's like having any sort of discipline kind of, you know, oh, I don't want to do that. And but it really is very cathartic. And I was sharing before the show and I'll share it now because I think (laughs) it's suitable. I call it the daily dump. (laughs) So it's the first thing you do in the morning. And what's interesting, if if you want to try and remember your dreams too, you can write down pieces of that. It doesn't have to be anything really other than that idea of stream of consciousness writing. Like anything that comes to your mind, you just put it on paper. So for me, I learned how to cursive handwrite very young and everything I write is in cursive. So it's also very artistic. You know, it's that flowing kind of... um, stream of consciousness writing in in a creative way. Mm -hmm. And when I was teaching kids, I felt, and the teachers that I worked with, that it was really important to teach creative handwriting, cursive handwriting. And in our reading for the show, it's, there's so many studies out there that children retain so much more, that they have so much more, um, what would it be? Hand-eye cord. There's just so many things. And, and I'll look here while we're talking about some of the, the studies about what kids miss out, even if they just learn printing. And now yeah, what concerns me, cursive, yeah, what concerns me now, and this kind of happened the other day, and I shared it with Tiffany, was that there's people that are in their 30s that can't read or write cursive. And that really shocked me. I was like, what? That's a shame. <laughs> yeah. How could that even happen? What are they, I guess the question, they're not teaching cursive in schools anymore. No. So, so basically, yeah. yeah. So when I was teaching, yeah, when I was teaching in like 97, we were still doing cursive handwriting. Now, mind you, I was working with teachers that had been teaching for 30 years. And so they were Every morning for half an hour, we did cursive handwriting and we would start with lowercase, then uppercase, then words, and it'd go through the entire year. So by the end of second grade, every single child knew how to do cursive handwriting. Whether the third grade, fourth grade teachers did that was kind of mixed bag. Now with Common Core, 
they don't teach cursive handwriting anymore. It's not part of the national or state standards, which I think is criminal. But we already did a show on the failures of education. <laughs> well, we're the same age, and I remember learning how to write cursive. You had the uppercase letters and the lowercase letters, and you had them all laid out, and we would have to sit there and just copy. Like the teacher would write all the letters on the board, and we would write them on a piece of paper, and combined with that would be, you know, we'd have to write a short story or something like that. And there was some emphasis on how neat it looked, but I recall that the boys kind of had more <laughs> trouble making their handwriting yeah. or their cursive writing look neat. But yeah, yeah, we would have to write stories and then short stories and sentences and paragraphs and just work it all out. And then like in the fourth grade, I remember we used to, well, I know I used to write plays. I know I didn't like a few of them. And then from there I would write short stories and then I would write letters like back and forth to my friend and we would make up characters and it would be like a book and we would write as if we were the characters and write letters back and forth to each other. And I took a creative writing class when I was in college. So I always really liked to write by hand mm -hmm. and I've always kept diaries too. So I don't know. Well, what's interesting about kids uh, learning to read if they learn to write by hand with the mm. cursive or even print is that they, they learn to read quicker. Yeah. Right. So it, and it has meaning, you know, so it's no longer like a really important thing, especially with like five and six year olds is you got to understand letters are like four, they, they have no meaning to them. Mm. And so if you can connect that artistic style of say cursive writing with the letters and, even as you're saying, Tiffany, that conjoining them together, it's mm -hmm. like, a, it, again, it's back to that idea of even a stream of consciousness. And it makes them um, recognize the word. And then also it stimulates um, various regions in their brain that does not happen if you're typing on a computer. Yeah, it doesn't happen if you're watching somebody else, right? You have to put in the, the effort, effort of doing it yeah. yourself. Well, I know I found that in <clears throat> in my own experience with uh, taking notes, and I know we talked about that before the show a little bit. And uh, personally, my note taking, like the, the legibility of it, is atrocious. That could be improved on, but I, I have noticed that it helps me uh, remember. Uh, so a lot of times, if I remember to do this throughout the day, I'll have a little notebook that I kind of go through my uh, my daily tasks on, and that seems to help. Mm -hmm. So that's not necessarily the full-on writing exercise that we're talking about, but I think that it's definitely connected to uh, some kind of memory. Yeah. Well, I think I, it's I, all facets. Yeah, go on, Doug. No, I was just going to say that I'm, I'm actually um, the poster boy for, like, men having poor handwriting skills <laughs> than women do. And I actually even had a teacher when I was in uh, grade school who um, actually told me not to use cursive because he couldn't read it. So he would, he actually told me that no, I, when you're doing assignments for me, you have to print, and it's actually something that that stuck. Pause there me. for a moment, Doug, because you're sounding staticky. Hold on. Well, I'll just mention that I think that teacher was terrible for doing that to you. <laughs> <laughs> it's a form of child abuse. Yes. Okay. 
Yeah, it's like uh, he kind of let you off the hook. Like he didn't challenge you. Yeah. And the thing is, it's like with anything, it takes practice. And especially for for young children, like they just got to keep doing it. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah, the repetition is certainly a big part of it. So, I mean, that makes sense with the exercise that you outlined, the daily dump. Um, <clears throat> I did creative writing in college, too, and I never I, – I had thought for some time that I wanted to be a writer. Uh, if I look back and I'm realistic, that was not really going to happen. Uh, but I, <laughs> I had the same thought, too. <laughs> yeah. Me, too. <laughs> yeah, because writer, actual writers are a completely different breed. I, I know a few who are professional writers, and they – that's not me. You know what I mean? So I had to let that go after a while, but, uh, it does take that <clears throat> dedication. So we had, you know, it, I'm sure everybody who's done this kind of a class has the same thing where you just write a page a day in our sense. It wasn't stream of consciousness. It was like, we had to come up with some kind of a short story. But in that case, there was a caveat that like, even if it was ridiculous, you still write it down. So, well, well, we did that in schools, but we would just give the kids what's called a writing prompt. And what's really great is you, you know, whatever it is, you have a giraffe in the woods or the savannah because the giraffe right. doesn't really live in the woods. But I mean, <laughs> the, the and then I've I mean, it was just so entertaining to read yeah. what these kids had written. And it's just so imaginative and creative and it's just so great and they some of it was just entertaining i mean we would just the teachers would sit around afterwards and spend like an hour reading all these things and and we never used a red pen because it was we didn't want to inhibit that early on so we never went back and corrected it which i think is really important and i think in one of our clips they may go into that that the idea of already at such a young age being critical mm-hmm. just mm-hmm. just because then like you were sharing Doug like that just tamps down it like stamps out that that desire to share yourself on paper yeah well I what I was gonna go into before I started getting all staticky was the that to this day I actually I write in block letters like just in in all caps basically mm-hmm. when I'm when I'm writing things down just because it's just something that stuck it's like now it's that that idea has been implanted in me that I have really poor cursive, so I'm not going to do it. Mm. I should just practice it. You should. Yeah, I can, I'll I send you a book, Doug. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I haven't written cursive in in years, aside from a signature. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess. Uh, <clears throat> You, most people would say, what's the practical application of cursive? So, I mean, but we would say that that, that is the, the mental exercise, really, because in, in the world, I don't know if there's really a practical application anymore. You know what I mean? I think the only from... practicality is that it strengthens your neurons in your brain. You have to sit there exactly. and you have to concentrate and you have to focus on what you're doing. Your attention isn't split between the keyboard and the monitor. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the one thing that I was actually really surprised about in reading about this is that it actually is, you know, using areas of your brain that wouldn't get used otherwise or kind of coordinating different parts of the brain that wouldn't necessarily do so otherwise. So it's, it's there actually is a very real kind of uh, neurological benefit to doing cursive yeah. writing. Mm-hmm. Right. 
And I think there have been some studies that using cursive writing can help children with dyslexia or people who have like motor control issues when they write letters. So having them do like cursive writing drills can help improve their symptoms of dyslexia. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And in America, dyslexia is not considered a learning disability. Like in schools, they will not touch that with a 10-foot pole. And I don't know why that is, but a lot of children really suffer with it. And again, I think it comes back to that whole idea that it's like, it's like if you or I were to try and learn Chinese or Japanese, it's just a bunch of squiggly lines and it, and it's really easy to mix it up. And, and I had a child that was definitely borderline dyslexia and did not like to print at all because everything would get turned around, but loved cursive handwriting. Hmm. And so there are um, three parts of the brain that's activated. Um, it's called the left fusiform gyrus, the interior frontal gyrus, and the posterior per- parietal cortex. <laughs> <laughs> For you brainiacs out there. <laughs> So it's exercise for your brain, basically. Yes. Yeah. Well, you guys have actually convinced me. I think I do need to start practicing cursive writing. Maybe I can start doing that morning dump. (laughs) In cursive. In cursive, exactly. (laughs) And you can write about the trauma of that teacher. Yeah. And you can can write him a cursive letter. Yeah, I could do that, actually. Curse him in cursive. (laughs) It's funny because he was like just really nitpicky about stuff. He wouldn't let any of the students use black ink because he said it gave him a headache to read it. (gasps) Everybody had to use blue or some other color or something. He couldn't use black ink. Yeah, he was. was That's weird. Yeah, I agree. If you're listening, Mr. Robertson. You're a jerk, wounding tons of children across the planet, or in Canada, anyway. Did you guys ever have to write as punishment? <laughs> like in elementary yes. school, I will not throw spitballs. I will not throw spitballs. And write it out 100 times. I I don't remember if I ever had to do lines, but I do remember getting detention and having to write an essay of why I was there or something like that, or yeah, you know, why what I did was wrong, some, something along those lines. And yeah, I don't know, it wasn't really too much of a punishment. I mean, it was because I was in detention, but uh, I I used to like writing like a lot, like you know, like you, Jonathan and Tiff. I think you said it. I I actually entertained the idea of being a writer as well, but. Um, so yeah, writing it was kind of like it was somewhat creative. Like you know, you had you, although you had an assigned topic, you had some, you know, some creativity to go through and say why you felt you were there. So yeah. Well, what about you, Tiff, did you have to do lines? Yeah, I will not throw spitballs. <laughs> one of them. And I think I had to write a letter home to my mother. Dear mom, I was throwing spitballs in class today. <laughs> blah 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 blah. But I actually forged her signature. That's how good my cursive was. <laughs> it looked just like hers. <laughs> so nothing ever really came of that. But I don't think I ever threw spitballs in class anymore. I just realized that I was really good at forging my mother's signature. <laughs> Which came in handy in other situations. 
Yeah. <laughs> well, there's another thing called Alexia, and it's obviously kind of in the same vein as dyslexia, but it's impaired reading ability. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, and this is in an article we carried on SOT called What's Lost as Handwriting Fails, and I'll put up the link here in a minute. But um, with Alexia, some individuals are unable to process print, but they can still read cursive and vice versa. And so this article is saying that this suggests that the two writing modes activate separate brain networks and engage more cognitive resources than would be the case with one single approach. So um, for some of us, sometimes we print certain things and then we write in cursive other things. So I, I thought that was really interesting. And again, I think kind of why we decided to do this show was the idea that writing actually makes you think. Right. Yeah, I think that that's uh, the, in in the experience that I have had with journaling, for sure. It's um, I, I essentially just end up talking to myself on the page, mm. and it kind of helps you work through things. Yeah, it it's kind of like you're uh, you're interviewing yourself. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. So I wonder if it uh, <clears throat> it it reminds me of uh, if you look at like the. Uh, the traditions of like the, the fourth way. And uh, I want to say Moraviev, uh, Boris Moraviev speaks about specifically the separation, the inner separation and being able to mm. have, you know, a, an observer who is able to sort of objectively catalog what you're doing in your life so that you are able to objectively assess things that are happening that might either be traumatic or you might jump the gun because you're excited. So you kind of keep your, emotions from going crazy. So I find that writing exercise helps with that too, because you are kind of talking to yourself in a way. Yeah. It's kind of a way I think, you know, especially if it's, if you're kind of writing out um, anything traumatic that's happened to you, it's kind of a way of just sort of organizing all those emotions and kind of being like, you know, you like, cause if you just keep it inside, it's kind of like you just had this mass of emotions and you don't, it's very difficult to kind of like get a handle on it and to be able to step outside of it, like you were saying. But um, so, I, I, yeah, I kind of think that uh, getting it down on paper, it's just it's it's kind of a like, you know, you're creating something like solid, you know, instead of these things just being these ephemeral sort of thoughts in your head, you kind of get it down on paper. And it's like it's it's suddenly it's a thing and it's in the world and it's, it kind of gives you a, a different view of it. Maybe that's right. too abstract. I don't know. Well, that can take us into Pennebaker and his writing exercises. And uh, he advocates writing down your deepest feelings about an emotional upheaval or a traumatic event in your life and doing this for 15 or 20 minutes a day for four consecutive days. And what he found was that uh, people who do that faithfully, not too soon after the trauma happens, but uh, after a little bit, of time after you have a little bit of time to process it. Um, he found that like in the group of students that he studied, they had fewer visits to the campus medical area. Um, and he also tested their blood and they had uh, higher immune function after completing the exercise. Wow. Well, his theory was that uh, getting your thoughts out on paper kind of reduces the amount of cortisol that you have mm-hmm. and that strengthens mm-hmm. your immune system. Hmm. 
Yeah, because cortisol suppresses the immune system. Yeah. Yeah. So have any of you guys <laughs> ever done the Pennebaker exercise? I'd like yeah, to think I that I do it <laughs> <laughs> all the time. <laughs> no. I was probably doing it in my diary before I knew what that was. I didn't actually write about it for different ways or four different times, but just writing about something at length. And after a certain amount of time, which is what Pennebaker noticed, he noticed that the perspective changes when hmm. a person writes about something over and over again. Um, they start using words like I realize or I understand or the reason that this happened is because of X. Whereas at the beginning of the exercise, it was more like an emotional dump. But at the end, they kind of gained some kind of emotional perspective on what happened to them and hmm. derived some kind of meaning from it. What's interesting is that seems like that's essentially what happens uh I'm sure most people have experience with this. If you've ever had a long conversation with a friend where you might have had some kind of conflict or like there was an unknown and you were like working it out and you were kind of worked up at the beginning and at the end you're like, okay, I get it. Like we talked it through. So it's kind of like you're doing that, you know, with yourself, a similar process. And you're able mm. to diffuse diffuse the, the bomb, so to speak, or the potential for, you know, running emotions. Yeah, I can say that I've had that happen with email exchanges, uh, particularly with people in my family that I don't have a good relationship with. And before I just hit reply and and go off, I will get a piece of paper and I will sit there and I'll write it all out. And then maybe I'll usually wait a week to respond and then... You know, I'll go back again and I'll go back again. And then if I do decide to respond, because there's been a few times I haven't, at least I can kind of coalesce my thoughts and come across clear, if that makes sense, instead of just Mm -hmm. ranting or, you know, being all over the place, like actually addressing what was said and, and being able to process the emotions before I just react to it. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I always wait, wait some time before uh, replying to emails, too. Even ones that are fairly innocuous, a lot of times I'm kind of like, well, I'm going to sleep on that one. Yeah. So the cursive thing, thing was interesting. Uh, it, it made me, th- you know, the, the, the fact that cursive is, is waning and not many, well, barely any people actually do it anymore. I, I would venture to say nobody uses it in terms of like, you know, daily use, like leaving notes for people or writing stuff down. I do. Um, I do. Oh, oh well. Oh. Hey. I still write letters. I stand corrected. <gasps> we happen to have the Why? two people on earth who are still using yeah. cursive on daily basis. Yeah, we, we don't have electronic charting at my job. We still have paper charts, so we have to write okay. notes about hmm. patients in the chart. Okay. So yeah, it's something that I use daily. That was certain. It was an incredibly short-sighted thing of me to say. <laughs> yeah, obviously, do- doctors' notes, right? Aren't doctors notorious for having really bad cursive? Oh, yeah, it's awful. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I do the so, same kind of thing as Tiffany in my job. Um, 
I do work on a computer and I'm on the phone, but I have a notepad and I write everything down and we call it CYA. You can figure out what that stands for. Uh-oh. Cover your ass, basically. And so yeah. um, when there's a problem, I go back and because uh, I deal with people and I have my notes of dealing with that person. And I will even put expletives in there sometimes. Hmm. So I know, you know what I'm saying? And it really helps me. It also helps me not keep all that information in my brain, right? Because like with Tiffany, when you're dealing with, you know, a hundred people a week, you can't possibly remember what this person or that person has as far as an issue. But if you have a notebook and you can go back to it or charts you can go back and you can see what you actually wrote about them. But here's them. the thing, though, because I write longhand notes about people, and I can remember. Like, if they call me <laughs> huh. and they say, oh, I remember you and blah, blah, what happened. Not every single time, but I say the majority of the time I can remember what happened. Hmm. And it's probably because I wrote it down. Yeah. Sure. Well, it's kind of interesting on that topic. We had an article, and I don't know the name of it, on SOD a couple of months ago where it said that note-taking does not help you retain information. And I kind of remember being like, I don't know if I agree with that. You know, they were saying once if you take a note, then you forget about it. But I think it kind of more pertains to whether or not you actually have any interest in what you're taking a note on. And if you go back. Mm. Yeah. Like when I was in college take notes during class. I mean, if I just took a note and then just, you know, put it in a drawer somewhere, of course I won't remember it. But if I go back, like to study for the test, I could remember while I was taking the test what I had written on mm-hmm. paper. Mm-hmm. And that's probably why I did so well on tests. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, Jordan Peterson has an interesting take on, on note-taking. Maybe we should, we've got a clip, don't we? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, your essay writing guidance has proven invaluable. Well, thank you. That that refers to that thing that that writing exercise that you can find on my psycho- psychology 430 website. I'll try to find a better place to put it. Um, maybe I'll tweet about it again. I'm glad it's invaluable. It, it's taken a long time to figure out how to write it. Do you have any guidance around taking notes from books and lectures? Yeah, yeah, no problem. Like, don't be taking notes during the lecture exactly, because then you're not listening to the lecture. It's like, listen to the lecture and then take notes afterwards. Now, that doesn't work for every discipline, but but it certainly works for disciplines. Like students in my lectures, I always tell them, don't take notes during the lecture. Listen to the damn lecture. You can take notes afterwards because what that does is force you to practice remembering. And then with regards to books, it's like read. Don't highlight. Don't underline. Like, that I think that that's just rubbish. I think it's pseudo work. Read a couple of paragraphs or maybe an essay, something like that, depending on the density of the book. Close the book. Think about it. Write down what you're thinking. Write down what you remember. But 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 in the context of what you're thinking about, because that instantiates it into your memory and give and puts it at hand. Like people ask me, for example, how it is that I can remember all the things that I talk about extemporaneously when I'm lecturing. And the reason for that is because I've thought them through. You know, I read them and I think, oh, okay, well, that's an interesting idea. How does it relate to all these other ideas that I know? 
Like, what is its significance for this idea? And what's its significance for this idea? And do I believe it? And how might I criticize it? So it's kind of like I'm I'm attaching little memory hooks to it in, in five different ways. And then I've got it. It's It's part of me. And that seems to be part of recall rather than, so rather than recognition. And recall is the spontaneous act of remembering something complex. And when you recall something, you're actually practicing remembering it. And that's what you need to do if you want that to be part of you. So I would say, separate out the function of reading and note-taking. So read, think, write. Or read, write, think. Because the last two things are quite similar. But don't like read the book and then read a sentence and then write down that sentence. That's not helpful. You could read the sentence, close the book, and then reformulate the sentence so that now it's your sentence, man. Then you'll remember it. Then you'll understand it. That works really well. Yeah, that's an interesting thing. Uh, I could see what he said about how it depends on the discipline. Because like if you're in biology class, you know, and you have to write down gene sequences, then uh, (laughs) that'd be different. I miss yeah, that class. But <laughs> <laughs> it totally yeah. makes sense in the context of like, yeah, uh, intellectual discipline, like psychology. Yeah, I think so too. I mean, I did take notes like all through my schooling and stuff like that. Is it, you know, I just sat there and wrote down notes. But, it, you know, hearing that now, it kind of makes me wonder if maybe I would have retained stuff a little bit better. I wonder though also about, you know, if it's really detailed information. You know, I'm thinking about when I was like in nutrition school and I was studying about the functions of vitamins and things like and minerals, like what they actually do in the body. <clears throat> I don't think there's any way that I would remember, like just remember that. But um, I mean, maybe, you know, you can use the lecture as, as kind of like you just sit there and think about the lecture and then you go to your textbook for the more specific stuff. I don't know. Like after afterwards, you would do that. That's what uh, well, my, my dad was in academia for for 45 years and uh he had always said when he was younger when he was in school that he uh never studied for exams because he had a specific process of note-taking and practicing memory remembering things and that uh time came to the exam and he had to cram stuff in the night before then he hadn't properly assimilated it so and it Hmm. worked Hmm. i'm that way too I've never been a crammer procrastinator. It doesn't work for me at all. And um, I don't know, it wasn't in that particular clip, but one thing Jordan Peterson said never to do was use a highlighter or underline things, and I am notorious for that. But what I would do was go back later and then look at what I highlighted and, like he said, think about it. And, and, you know, this goes back to like different learning styles of people. And that's one of the things we learned in school for me was like people are different type of learner. So you have your auditory learner, you have your visual learner, you have, you know, kinesthetic learner. And so pretty early on, I learned that I needed to listen and take notes at the same time and that I would remember the information. And I think with the way that school is taught now, especially with computers and digital interaction with the kids, is that's why we are seeing what we are seeing with children today, which is basically functionally illiterate. Mm -hmm. Right. 
Unlike even yeah. in colleges, you see these big lecture halls and everybody has their laptop out mm-hmm. and they're trying to take notes on a laptop. I mean, that just never works for me. I have to write it out by hand and I have to be listening. It's not like I'm trying to write down word for word what the professor is saying or like there would be other students who would bring in a tape recorder so they can just record yeah. the whole lecture. I'm like, why are you doing that? Well, they may, write they, down the salient points of what you hear, the things that pop out at you, and hope that that's enough. Well, I yeah. just to, to on that point, they could be auditory learners, and they could, if they just keep listening to it, mm-hmm. actually retain the information. That may be why they're doing it. It's too much work for me. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't think that would work for me at all. I don't think I'm an auditory learner, I guess, because uh, you know, no matter how many times I listen to something, it's not really going to stick, but. Writing things out in you know in my own words or in my own hand definitely works for for remembering things for sure. Yeah. I'll use mnemonic devices too. Somebody in the chat mentioned mnemonic devices. You know where you kind of uh, use association to to kind of uh, memorize different things. And I actually did use that to memorize like the functions of vitamins and, and minerals and things like that. Like with vitamin A, I was kind of like, well, an A kind of looks like a carrot. And I know that you can get, you know, beta carotene, pre-vitamin A from a carrot. So, you know, I think it was good for growth. So I pictured this giant carrot monster, and it's good for your eyes. So I pictured him, like, shooting carrots out of his eyes. Apparently, the more ridiculous (laughs) you make these things, the more gross, the more sexual, it's the more likely that you're going to remember them. So I have all these, like, crazy images in my head of, like, what these different vitamins did. And it worked. Nice. Yeah, that's great. I, I use the audio recording in uh, French class, but that was a different context. Yeah. Than, than your native language. Uh, what, uh, Tiff? Let, let's go to that second clip that we had for a minute. That was uh, specifically about the exercises. Uh, which one was that? I don't remember. On the power of writing, it's another Jordan Peterson clip we have. Yeah, I think that, oh, okay. I, I think that would be good because it actually kind of encapsulate what we're trying to share. If, yeah. if, if our message is not coming across clearly, <laughs> why writing is good for you? Right on. Awesome. Because I updated it. Anyways, I have this guide to writing that's that if it isn't on the 434 website, it is definitely on the 430 website, and. Uh, it steps people through the process of writing. Because what's happened now, it's very hard to teach people to write because it's unbelievably time intensive. And like writing, marking a good essay, that's really easy. Check A. You did everything right. right. Marking a bad essay? Oh my God. The words are wrong, the phrases are wrong, the sentences are wrong, they're not ordered right in the paragraphs, the paragraphs aren't coherent, and the whole thing makes no sense. So, trying to tell the person what they did wrong, it's like, well, you did everything wrong. Everything about this essay is wrong. Well, that's not helpful either. You have to find the few little things they did half right, and you have to teach them what they did wrong. It's really expensive. And so what I did with this rubric was try to address that from the production side instead of the grading side. But the best thing you can do is teach people to write, because there's no difference between that and thinking. And one of the things that just blows me away about universities is that no one ever tells students why they should write something. It's like, well, you have to do this assignment. Well, why are you writing? Well, you need the grade. It's like, no, 
you need to learn to think because thinking makes you act effectively in the world. Thinking makes you win the battles you undertake. And those could be battles for good things. If you can think and speak and write, you are absolutely deadly. Nothing can get in your way. So that's why you learn to write. It's like, and I can't believe that people aren't just told that. It's, it's, it's like, it's the most powerful weapon you can possibly provide someone with. And I, I mean, I know lots of people who've been staggeringly successful and watched them throughout my life. I mean, those people, you don't want to have an argument with them. They'll just slash you into pieces. And not in a malevolent way. It's like, if you're going to make your point and they're going to make their point, you better have your points organized because otherwise you're going to look like and be an absolute idiot. You are not going to get anywhere. And if you can formulate your arguments coherently and make a presentation, if you can speak to people, if you can lay out a proposal, God, people give you money, they give you opportunities, you have influence, that's what you're at university for. And so that's what you do. Is you, that's, you're, in, you're in English, right? You're, and yeah, in languages anyways. It's like, yeah, teach, teach people to be articulate because that's the most dangerous thing you can possibly be. So, and that's motivating if people know that. It's like, well, why are you learning to write? Because here's your sword, here's your M16, right? Here's your bulletproof vest. Like, you learn how to use them. But, uh, it's just, it's an endless mystery to me why that isn't made self-evident. So, that's the sort of thing that can drive you mad trying to sort out. It's like people are, there's a, there's a conspiracy to bring people into the education system to make them weaker. So, I guess that keeps the competition down. Maybe that's one way of thinking about it. If your students are stupid, they're not going to challenge you. So... <laughs> That's kind of true. He kind of, yeah. kind of nailed it. He nailed it yeah. right at the end there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it's true though that no one ever tells you the reason why you're writing. You're just writing this because it's something that you have to do for this class. They never say, "Oh, this will help you uh, gather your thoughts better and present them in a meaningful way, mm-hmm. and yeah. it will help you in mm-hmm. every aspect of your life if you learn how to write succinctly and write well." No one ever says that. And keep writing. Yes. That's probably why I lost interest in anything besides fictional writing (laughs) around (laughs) high school and college age. (laughs) But um, when I was in graduate school, we had to write a lot of essays uh, for social work. And some of Mm. the students in the class, it's like, oh, my God, how did you even graduate from high school? This is... Yeah. Horrible. Like, like he said uh-huh. in the video, everything in this essay is wrong. Like the grammar, yeah. the sentence structure. You don't know how to create a coherent paragraph. It was just really bad. And I was surprised yeah, or they even... made it all the way to grad school and didn't know how to write mm-hmm. a paper. Yeah. It's even even to the level where, like, you know, I didn't go to graduate school, but just an undergrad. I was like really kind of blown away when I would read um, some people's essays and. They didn't even like it, it was it was so meandering and all over the place like they didn't have an, a coherent like argument or like what the essay was about. They were just kind of like writing around this topic without having like 
a central thesis. Like, this is what this essay is about. This is what I'm arguing for. This is my point. They would just be, kind of be like all over the place. And I can really see what Jordan Peterson is talking about here is that like if you can hone this skill, then, you know, you, you kind of can zero in on things and you can really like kind of have an argument and know what your argument is, know what supports that argument and why, you know, the counter arguments and why they aren't valid. You know, all these these different things that that writing can really help you to kind of organize, like just just to, to model your brain in a way that it can kind of work this way. It's yeah. Uh, it, it, yeah. Anyway. And it affects every facet of your life, too, Mm -hmm. not just your academics. Yeah, like if you read a (laughs) lease to rent an apartment or you read a contract for something and you have to know what they're saying or why this doesn't make sense or know why you want this changed, it it helps you everywhere. Yeah, and just even in the uh, understanding of nuance, you know, mm-hmm. in communication mm-hmm. and being able to suss out like what people mean, because there's a lot of times where somebody might think that you're hearing what they mean, but you're not and vice versa. And you have, yeah. to, you have to be able to recognize that. Um, yeah. G- uh, Gatto, John Taylor Gatto talks about that too, like the act of literacy and the art of rhetoric and how important that is in basically honing your intelligence and your mm-hmm. ability to uh, observe and think critically. Um and uh, now, please don't misinterpret me. I am not making any political statement by this. And referring to what John Taylor Gatto said about the, the South back in the day, that uh, around the time of the Civil War and before that, that the politicians and the lawyers from the South had a strong tradition of rhetoric. And so they were able to run circles verbally around the politicians and lawyers from the North whenever they got together mm. for debates and stuff. And that that was like a that was a big thing. There was a lot of frustration around it. And um, so it, it was because they had specifically trained for that and were able to craft their words and, you know, communicate or if we're frank, manipulate by utilizing that a certain way. Um, so I, you know, the, the end point being that, yeah, owning your ability uh, to communicate um, is only benefited by, by writing and it also not only mm. owns your ability to communicate absorb information as well accurately well it's interesting you yeah. say that because uh i was reading about george orwell and um, his take on academic writing and political jargons and cliches and euf- euphemisms and all that and he basically was saying how obscure and precise language deliberately masks the speaker or writer's meaning and motives. And it kind of works like an anesthetic, deadening the thinking of people who hear it as well as people who use it. And so for Orwell, the political implications are clear. Opening oneself to vague, ready-made phrases is to give up one's control of one's own thoughts. And conversely, mm-hmm. learning to write with clarity, correctness, and precision can protect against ideological manipulation. Yeah. Because we've all been in a lecture where we were just like, what are they even saying? Yeah. (laughs) I can't even take a note because I don't understand. (laughs) Yeah. Well, what what a prescient quote because, like, now what do we have besides vague phrases? Look at the memes on social media. Like, that's pretty much... You know, with the entire okay, I'm being melodramatic, but a, a lot, a large portion of people communicating online now is in, you know, pre 
pre-planned, like pre-written catchphrases, so to speak. Mm-hmm. So you mm-hmm. just go like, oh, uh, I, I'm, I'm happy today because uh, I saw sunrise and it was real nice. So I'm going to look up a picture for the sunrise with an inspirational quote and share that. I think a lot of the times it's just like, or you'll see something where you're surfing around like, oh, I feel that way and share it. And you took no time at all to actually distill and think about what you were, it's not to say the feelings weren't genuine, but you didn't think at all about how to communicate that, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, your feelings are just, you know, reduced down to the level of emoticons. It's like, right. oh, there's no emoticon to express what I'm feeling right now. So I guess I just won't say anything. Yeah. Well, I know you'll notice if you, I don't, I don't, honestly, I don't know if it's this way on like uh, Android, but I, I have an iPhone and when you type a text message, it gives you the option as you're typing to fill in the words with the corresponding emojis. Oh. Right? So if I, if I, if I type tree, it will highlight the word tree in little orange highlight. And if I click that, then it will change the word tree to a tree emoji. Oh, so, can you turn that so, off? <laughs> I just, I just turn keep, off I just switch typing. for that. <laughs> yeah. But what's interesting is that prompt and, you know, I've, and I've seen it a lot too, where people will then type a whole text message out where uh, it's interspersed with words substituted with emojis. So you, you're oh, reading God. and then you see the picture of the tree, you know, or the, you know, the dog or the heart or whatever. Uh, and, and now, you know, uh, I don't know necessarily how prevalent this is. Maybe our chatters could give feedback, but there are uh, kids who are typing entirely in emojis. Like that itself is becoming a, a language. Oh, like uh, that movie Idiocracy. Mm-hmm. I was yeah. like, goes yeah. to the hospital and there's just all these symbols. <laughs> yep, totally. yeah, it, it is that for sure. I, I think it's fascinating from like an anthropological point of view, but it's disturbing too, you know, because it's uh, it's what Orwell talked about. Um, you know, it's it's uh, it's 1984. It's Newspeak. It's mm-hmm. the textbook dumbing down of the ability to coalesce your thoughts into a clear form of communication whatever that might be that's that's detailed and nuanced and able to be you know explored that is is fading away and so uh, as you uh, get rid of that then you you naturally and, and by default you uh, you get rid of people's ability to even do that and then you take that even further you get rid of their ability to even think about it mm-hmm. yeah that's what that was yeah. in 1984, wasn't it? With Newspeak, like we get rid of the words; they don't use the words. Pretty soon, they can't think the concepts because they don't yeah. have the words for them. It was something um, that was popular at the time called the the Warfian hypothesis, which is basically the guy was saying that a person's ability to um, think about and feel certain things was limited by their language. So you couldn't you couldn't think about a concept if you didn't have the the language to describe it. It's kind of, you know, it's, it's, it's debated at this point, but um, I think there's definitely something to that. Well, at the very least, you you know, like you said, it's debated, but at the very least it would, it, it takes your power away because even yeah. if like say average John or Jane Doe can, can think about something, but can't communicate it, they have no power in that regard. Cause then, yeah. you know, if, I don't know, maybe it, it, implementation is tied to that. Like, so if I, th- I think about an idea and I can't tell anybody what I'm thinking because I don't know how to say it, but can I do it? You know, in that case, mm-hmm. then I might be able to figure out how to say it, but it's like nowhere back to caveman days. Well, <laughs> I think that's why what Penn Baker found over his, what, 30 years of doing this was that, especially with trauma, if you're 
hiding things and you're not expressing them at all, that if you were to write it down on paper, even if you have to burn it afterwards, and just not share it with anybody. not share it with anyone, just actually being able to put it down on paper can be a sense of release in and of itself. And then going through the writing to heal process of actually processing all those emotions that are attached to it that you don't even know you have. Mm. Uh, real quick to the previous thing, some one of our chatters did say that uh, there's a show on Comedy Central that has a game based around reading emojis. So <laughs> I, I'm not familiar with the show, but I would infer that it has like that they they have to try to read out emojis and then they get scored based on that. I have that problem with the the all the LOL and all the little things text that talk. Yeah. text talk. Yeah. yeah. One time yeah. I got. Uh, one that said TH, and I was like, or TY, 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 what, is T- what are they saying? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I don't understand. <laughs> thank you, Erica, duh. <laughs> I know. It took me a while. That's what that means? <laughs> yes, thank you. <laughs> oh. So you couldn't take the extra second to actually type it out. <laughs> <laughs> well, for the longest no, that... time, I was really opposed to texting at all. Like, people would text me, and I would just call them, like, what? Don't text me. Just call me. What are you? <laughs> but then yeah. people just kept doing it and doing it. So eventually I started texting, but I still get angry when I'm writing out a text and it has that auto fill in, like you're mm-hmm. typing a word mm-hmm. and then it'll guess which word you're actually trying to write. That still kind of pisses me off. Just let yeah. me write the text for God's sake. <laughs> or I saw a funny meme where you're like, I don't text either. But I'm very bad at it. But, you know, you you have like a big, long text and then the responder says, yep. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, it's easy. It's easy on text to do what you wouldn't do in person. You know, if you're in person, somebody told you a story you would be like, all right, see ya. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, the shortening of the language is really weird. That bothers me too. I don't like using the letter U for you. Mm-hmm. It's like Y O no. the other two letters, you know. That's uh, super lazy. Yeah, or letter letter B number four, that kind of thing. Um yeah, I don't know. It's just like I've had people come back at me too, like, don't tell me how to write, bro, and I'm like, Okay. Uh, it's just, <laughs> <laughs> What's bro? Oh, that's short for brother, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> We have a caller Yay. on the line. Uh, Hello. And let's see if this caller can connect. Okay. Hello, caller. Are you there? Uh, I, I'm here. Can you hear me okay? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Hey. Hey, this is Shane. Hi, Shane. Hey, Shane. Hey, guys. Um... So yeah, I wanted to call in because I was uh, the topic. Uh, he disappeared. No. Oh, no. <laughs> Try again. I'll make it work. We're gonna see if he can reconnect. Oh, so uh, the our chatter who uh, was talking about the the show on Comedy Central found it said it's uh, called Emo Genius. Anybody who might be curious to get up. It's the new bumper stumpers. Does anybody remember that? <laughs> yeah, you're <laughs> no. reading license plates. Yeah, license plates and what they, oh. what they actually mean. <laughs> oh, well, boy. that would take more mental skill, I think, than reading emojis. 
<laughs> you mean like they would have to tell like what state the or what uh, like county the plate came from or things like that? No, no, oh. no, no. It would it would be like uh, like you know the vanity plates where they have like yeah. a, a combination of letters and numbers oh. to to say something, and and yep. you have to be able to kind of decode that. I get it. That makes sense. Yeah. Okay. We it looks like, like a, we have our caller on the line here. Hey, I'm back. Hi, Shane. Hey, hey. hey Shane. Hey, everybody. Um, so, yeah, I was. Uh, I, I don't know how much of I was breaking up a bit uh, then, but uh, I was uh, talking about uh, Norman Deutsch's book, uh, The Brain That Changes Itself, and it's about uh, neuroplasticity and the brain's ability to uh, develop and he he wrote about some particular instances of, of trauma and uh, issues with early development. And one of the stories, there was a, a woman, um, Barbara Apple or uh, Barbara Arrow Wild Young, and she was a Canadian who had a severe uh, developmental uh, disability. And she basically trained herself. Um, to be able to communicate, um, you know, like, like, uh, like other people, um, through, through these various exercises and, and she was basically able to work through it. Um, and, you know, a lot of these developmental disabilities, they're, they're considered pervasive, uh, and, uh, meaning like non-changing, uh, by, you know, a lot of medical doctors and psychologists and, and so on there. It's, it's something that's considered, you know, a, a permanent uh, thing. Um, but her story, you know, suggests something different. And she she opened up a, a school in Canada uh, for for children uh, with de- developmental disabilities. And what's interesting is one of the exercises that she has at the school is it's very similar to uh, cursive writing. It's actually they. They uh, they just put something over the left eye and they use they trace uh, these patterns that you know is very much like uh, looks like a cursive writing and you know there, there's a variety of other exercises as well um, but you know I think it goes to show that there's very likely you know some connection between you know this this movement in your hand and you know uh, especially during that young during that young period in your life when you know you're developing and learning and um, and 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 the connection that that has with uh, you know your developing brain and now you know not only is that taken out but like you guys were just talking about now it's just like basically emojis you know <laughs> our kids and adults are now communicating and. Basically, you know, the, the most uh, simplistic way possible that has the least amount of meaning. And, you know, that, that just kind of boggles my mind. You know, it, it's, it, it really takes the substance out of communication. And, you know, you go back and you read, um, you know, s- some people like uh, um, William James or uh, Charles Dixon, Dickens. And, 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 you know, their writing is – it has a lot of depth and it has a lot of uh, – meaning contains contained in the words and you know it's it's not the same anymore you know now with uh, the fiction that you pick up today it's you know it's definitely dumbed down and you know young adult novels are are you know very popular among adults you know mm-hmm. that's, that's just kind of kind of a thing but uh yeah i just wanted to share share that story 
I've got an emoji. Pretty soon I'll just be communicating with grunts and groans and pointing. (laughs) (laughs) That that may be. That looks like where we're headed. Yeah. Yeah, well, it's certainly a disturbing trend. I mean, I hope, you know, I guess I don't know if there's a a way to reel back from that. Maybe just on an individual level. Or like a you know maybe like a family unit level or a community kind of level, but uh, overall with the progress and the pace of technology, it doesn't seem like we're going to reel back the decline in literacy anytime soon. Probably yeah. not. But I think yeah. in one of the articles that we read, there was a what I consider a very novel idea. No pun intended. But um, <laughs> <laughs> families who where all the various members of the family group will write about a particular event. It doesn't necessarily have to be traumatic. It could be like a, like a holiday or something. They all write their thoughts about it and they keep it all like in a scrapbook and they go back years later and read what everybody thought about what happened. Mm-hmm. Or somebody might write a little bit about themselves and it's a way to pass the written history of your family down through each generation. Mm-hmm. I thought that was a really good idea. But it's doubtful that cool. any large number of people will take that up. Yeah. Well, I'm gonna you know, listen. To... Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna head out. But oh. it was good uh, chatting with you guys and uh, talk again soon. Thanks, Thanks for calling. Thanks, Shane. Thanks, Shane. Thanks, Shane. Thank you. Bye. Now, I used to think that maybe it was possible to have kind of like almost like a bilingual thing going on. So, while yeah, you're communicating in text speak and emojis and all that kind of stuff on your cell phone you know you're still capable of like you know composing a decent essay or writing your thoughts in a coherent manner and that sort of thing but it doesn't seem like that's the direction that things are going in um and maybe it's just because you know it's it's things are heading in a direction where people don't find that they need to do that so that all they're doing is just texting and social media and those sorts of things keeping their their thoughts to 40 characters or less and, um, yeah, you know, at, at, a while ago I was thinking, oh, yeah, you know, it's, it's almost like a new language, but it's like, no, it's, it's actually like replacing our old language, which is a really scary thought. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great point. It's not an addition to. It's actually supplanting it. That's what it seems like. Yeah. Maybe not by and large yet. I mean, <clears throat> obviously language and the study of language and the, the interest in communicating clearly is still a thing, you know, broadly there's, there's entire fields around it. There's a lot of people that are into that, that, you know, that, that actually study and employ those techniques in their daily life. But, it, you know, the fact that it's dwindling is certainly uh, also evident. And I think more so, you know, like in the, in the youth I think we've kind of touched on this idea before, but it's <clears throat> it's interesting now that you see examples, and this is please no offense to any parents, but examples of uh, of very smart children who might be very talented or do something special uh, are so much, I think, less common now than they used to be that it will go viral, huh. you know? <laughs> And I realize this sound a little bit cold saying that, but I think in the past that there were more instances of very intelligent, very impressive young people who would do things where you would go, whoa, that was crazy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and now when that does happen, it's like, you know, <clears throat> it gets shared on YouTube or Facebook and, and a million plus 10, 20, 30 
50 million people are like, this is incredible. You know, this child needs to be in the Hall of Fame, but, you know, for <laughs> insert example here. Uh, but I don't know. So, yeah, I think that part of that, too, is, is a function of the direction that we're going and, and uh, mm. the um, that kids, you know, a lot of kids are not even really using keyboards now, younger kids, uh, that we may even move beyond the keyboard itself to a fully kind of touchscreen interaction with computers, you know. Oh, wow. So maybe one day in the future, some parent will post a video of their kid reading and writing. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, exactly. Child is a genius. <laughs> yeah. My child or taught you'll... himself cursive. <laughs> <laughs> Or you'll see a picture of a like a, of a page from a notebook with writing on it, and says "like and share" if you remember this. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> a picture of a pencil. Yeah. <laughs> I've seen some stupid stuff like that, man. Like just recently too, like uh, like a eraser, you know, like a manual uh, <laughs> crank eraser that was like "like and share" if you remember what this is. Like, come on. <laughs> I saw that with a cassette tape. Yeah. yeah, I saw yeah. that one too. Yeah. Although actually I have like younger cousins who don't know what those are. Or I mean they do know, but they don't have any actual memory of using one at all. I remember when computers ran on cassette tapes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> or floppy disks. Yeah. Well, kind of speaking to what you said, Jonathan, like, because I am a parent and uh, – <laughs> um, I think it's happening. It's we are in the midst of it because I do work with a lot of young people and I think I shared earlier about how one of them could not read or write cursive. But these people are on their phones incessantly and when you say something that requires a little bit of thought, it's like that blind fluoride stare. Like what is, what are you talking about? Sure. sure. And and they're always talking about TV or did you see this or did you see that? And then you say something like, mm-hmm. oh, um, do you know who Julian Assange is? And they're like, what? Who's that? <laughs> <laughs> so I think we're in the midst of it. I really do. Yeah. Yeah. A lost art, as our chatter says. Yes. Yeah. Totally. Well, just to, that reminds me of another thing that uh, Gatto refers to that there were books that were required reading in academic situations uh, you know less than 80 years ago that are now you'd be lucky to find for 10, 15, 20 thousand dollars you know because they they either you know were were rare or have been like taken out of print um, and that uh, that those that that so forgive me for being vague, but that those class of, of texts uh, that were written specifically about rhetoric and honing communication skills are now reserved to kind of the upper class, you know, elite boarding schools that this certain mm-hmm. aspect of education and rhetoric is kept within a, within a certain corral. Um, and that, you know, it's made, it's specifically made to be less available to the common person. Huh. Yeah, or I don't what, think so. uh, schools even have speech class anymore because when I was in junior high school, we ha- we all had to take speech. Yeah. And I don't – I've never heard of anybody having to take that anymore. <laughs> or what's yeah, happening now – what's happening now uh, just because I had kids in high school in the last, you know, five, ten years is that they don't even have required reading. So 1984 used to be required reading in high school. They have cliff notes. 
That's oh. what they give the kids. They give, give the, the kids. Notes? Yes, wow. because the the Those used to be the cheats. Yeah, yeah, that was the thing. So, but yeah, the content too, takes too long to get the kids to read the entire book. So now they just take excerpts from the book. And uh, think about that, like about fragmenting yeah. ideas and knowledge and picking and choosing what, you know what Everything I mean? Everything is a sound bite. Now. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah, unbelievable. <clears throat> that you would get in trouble with Cliff Notes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because, yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. Yeah, yeah we had, in uh, fact, I remember teachers putting specific questions on the tests and stuff like that, that if you'd only read the cliff notes, you wouldn't get it. Like, you know, it's not in the right. cliff notes. Like, they, they were familiar yeah. with them. Yeah. Yeah, so I, don't, I don't know if, like, um, do vocabulary classes exist anymore by themselves? We had that when I was in school. We had an English class and mm-hmm. a speech class and a vocabulary class. Hmm. Doubtful. Yeah. Yeah, I remember dreading speech class, but it was good. Yeah, it was a good exercise, for sure. Like everything, you have to practice. I mean, if you really want to become a better writer or a better speaker, it requires a lot of practice. And I've been yeah. like some really smart people that I know who can just retain like loads of information. I'm in awe of them. Like even watching Jordan Peterson, you don't see him like looking down at his notes. He's just going. <laughs> <laughs> like, how does he do that? <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, to, just to bring him up again, John Taylor Gatto is like that too. When you hear him speak, he's, he's speaking at you. He's not looking, he's not even taking it. Well, he does from time to time, but most of the time he's not even taking that much time to recall things. It's just mm-hmm. coming out. And it's like on page 65 of, of, of X book yeah. 1963, who was written by this guy, who was the nephew of somebody who wrote this book in 1830, you know. So, yeah, it's and it's amazing. So I, I completely yeah, granted, these, these people are very passionate about the topics on which they're speaking. But yeah. still, it's amazing to watch. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think on that note, let's aspire to be like those people. Yeah. There you go. Uh, let's let's go to Zoya's uh, segment for today, uh, the pet health segment. She did does have one for us on the topic of squished face dogs, and uh, <laughs> they are adorable but not without health problems. So uh, let's go to that. Hello, and welcome to the pet health segment of the Health and Wellness Show. My name is Zoya, and this week's topic is brachiocephalic breeds, all breeds with a squished face. And they are without a doubt so incredibly cute and adorable. Many people love them for their short noses, big bulgy eyes, and crooked legs. They look so funny and cute like this. All the funny snoring noises they make when they breathe, right? Well, actually, as unfortunate as it may be, All the things that I mentioned are indicators that this pet is destined to have a life full of difficulties and medical problems. Listen to the following recording by Dr. Andy Rourke to learn what to expect when you choose to have such a pet. Have a great weekend and goodbye. This week on The Cone, we are talking about those adorable smush face breeds and we are laying bare their dark secrets. Let's go. 
And now, the vets who gets really excited when someone new comes to visit, Dr. Andy Rourke. When I talk about the smush-faced dogs, I'm talking about the brachycephalic breeds like the English Bulldog, the Boston Terrier, the Frenchie, the Shih Tzu, the Lhasa Opso, the Boxer, any of those short-nosed, flat-faced dog breeds. If you want a full list of the brachycephalic breeds, I got you right here. Let me say this right up front. I love these little dogs. It is not hard to see why they are so, so popular and they have hearts of gold and they're wonderful companions. Still, whether you're trying to decide if one of these dogs is right for you or if you just wanna make sure you're taking the best care of your squish face companion possible, there are things that you need to know. Let's talk about five of them. Look, they're adorable. But it's just important to realize that these squish-faced dogs don't look the way they do because of good old-fashioned natural selection. If we put a picture of a pug up next to its ancestral wolf, you might notice some differences. The smush-faced dogs have been made this way by selective breeding, not evolution happening in nature. That's why they have some weird problems that you might not necessarily expect, but we need to know about. Smush-faced dogs are prone to a condition called brachycephalic syndrome. Brachycephalic syndrome is made up of four parts, okay? Number one, elongated soft palate. They've got a long, flabby part in the back of their neck, like the part that makes you snore is longer than it should be in these guys. Hypoplastic trachea is a narrow little windpipe. They have stenotic nares, which means their nose holes are really tiny, and if you look at them, You'll see these oftentimes, these are little bitty slits of a nose. And the last part is what's called everted laryngeal saccules. There are these sacs that um, are in the, the larynx, like, like the, the voice box. And they're supposed to be turned in like pockets in your pants. If you don't have big nose holes and it's hard to breathe, honestly, you can cause those things to suck outwards. Like picture your pockets being turned outwards. That's what happens. And so they have these sacs that should be tucked away but they're pulled out into the windpipe and now they're causing extra problems. Those are the four pieces of brachycephalic syndrome. You can see how these four conditions would make breathing really hard. It turns out the shorter the snout, the higher the chances of having brachycephalic syndrome and having these breathing problems. Because of the flatness of their faces, these dogs can also have eye problems. You think about their eyes being kind of bulged out. That's because their faces are squished. The condition that they can have is called brachycephalic ocular syndrome. Essentially, because these guys have eyes that bulge out, they're at a higher risk of getting injury, getting scratched because their eyes are sticking out there. So they're kind of a bigger target for little things that might poke them. Their eyelids tend to do weird stuff and they have eyelashes that will maybe poke the wrong way and we get eye irritation that's not normal. And the last thing is some of these guys are honestly not able to close their eyelids the whole way. So we have problems keeping the eyes wet and we have tear production problems. Those wrinkles on the face are adorable but know that they can cause problems. They have chafing and irritation if they rub. Honestly, those wrinkles can also rub against the eye. Remember the bulging eyes. And they can cause eye problems. 
is just something we need to pay attention to when we're looking at wrinkles and looking at dogs. Because of their big heads, some of these dogs have problems giving natural birth and they have litters that have to be delivered by C-section. Also, their, I don't want to say oddly shaped head, but the, the shape of their head can make it more likely that their teeth will grow in, in weird ways that can cause problems that have to be fixed. So those are the weirdnesses that you should know about. Again, I'm not hating on these guys at all. I just want you to have all the info and just think about this when you're looking at the smush face breeds. Now, what can we do for these guys? Use a harness. These guys may have problems breathing. Let's not put anything around their neck if we don't need to. A harness works great for walking and helping them get where they need to go. Pay attention to muzzle length. Respectable breeders are all over this and they're paying attention to understand the benefits of a longer snout as far as breathing and the other problems that we discussed. Puppy mills, they don't care. They want the best Instagram face that they can get. And so know what you're looking for, know what's important and pay attention to that stuff. Don't let them get hot. Dogs cool themselves down in a large part by panting. Panting when you've got a tiny little airway and nose holes that are itty bitty and some saccules and this long soft palate dangling down in the back of your mouth. That's a bad scenario. These dogs can get into a lot of trouble really quickly and heat stroke is a big problem. We've got to keep these guys cool. Don't let them get overweight. Being overweight makes all the problems that we're talking about worse. They get hotter, they need more oxygen, the airways are smaller, the folds are bigger, and there's more space and they're more likely to chafe and rub, all that stuff. Keep these guys thin, it will make a bigger difference than anything else as far as their quality of life. Consider pet insurance. If you think that your friend might have issues in the future, think about getting him or her pet insurance so that you are covered if you end up with issues you have to manage in the long term, you'll be glad you have it. Guys, talk to your vet about any problems that you see. There are things that we can change in their lifestyle or their diet that can make a huge difference. Also, some of these pets may really benefit from surgery to open up those nostrils, to, to, to make that soft palate more manageable. Think about something that would help them breathe and how much of a difference that could make. There are things that we can do. Stay in touch with your veterinarian and talk about what you're seeing and, and how your buddy is doing. And that is our show. Again, thanks for letting me talk to you about these little smush face guys. I love them. They are wonderful dogs. I just want everybody to know all the information going in. I think uh, the best thing that can happen for them is that we know as much as we can about them. The best thing that can happen for prospective dog owners is they know what they're getting into and what challenges they might be facing so they can get the best, best friend possible. If you have one of these dogs and you love them, tell me about them in the comments. I love to hear your joy. Guys, take care of yourselves and let's be the people that our pets deserve. Today's episode of Cone of Shame brought to you by Pet Plan Pet Insurance. Well, those are not squished face goats because they sound like they can breathe really well. <laughs> so do we get like $10,000 from Pet Plan Pet Insurance now? For that? <laughs> Oh, no, that was great. Thank you, Zoya. Thank you. Uh, I have a friend who uh, has always had a lot of uh, pugs, and uh, they, they certainly are cute. Mm -hmm. uh, 
it's easy to forget their health problems when they're sniffling, running around. Yeah. Well, I always I thought know. they seemed so unhealthy because of the snorting and. Yeah, and when you're around them for a while, yeah, like you can tell. But if it's like if you're going to visit a friends and they all come out the door, you're like, oh, oh my god, they're so cute, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, anyway. Um, well, thank you to our chat participants for uh, taking part in the chat today. And uh, please be sure to check out the SOT radio show on Sunday, noon Eastern time. Uh, go to radio.sot.net. Uh, and we will be back next week with another show. See you, everybody. Bye, everybody. Bye.